Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Christopher Rufo. He is a filmmaker, writer, researcher at the Discovery Institute. He's a contributing editor at City Journal with an expertise there in poverty, homelessness, and crime. He has, in the last six weeks or so, done some extraordinary investigative reporting. I told him that this reminds me of the Muckrakers 120 years ago. Uh, and I think that instead of giving a summary of what he's been doing, what he's uncovered in, in the last six weeks plus, I'm going to let him describe what he's been researching, what he found, how he found it. Welcome, Christopher. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you know, it's it's quite interesting. I've fallen almost backwards into reporting on critical race theory in public institutions. It all started uh, when I received an anonymous uh, tip email uh, that the city of Seattle was holding racially segregated diversity trainings. Uh, so one, one training for people of color, one training for uh, white employees, and the training for white employees, as I found out after doing a public records request, uh, was teaching them how to uh, essentially interrupt their whiteness and undo what they were calling internalized racial superiority. And it was this shocking and horrific document uh, that laid out all of the academic ideas from critical race theory, which emerged in the 1990s, uh, now really weaponized against uh, white employees at the city of Seattle. And that story took off like wildfire. It's now led to a Department of Justice investigation uh, into the city of Seattle Office of Civil Rights uh, that might actually be violating uh, the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, as it turns out in a kind of irony. Um, but that set me off on this journey of now reporting on um, some really horrific uh, critical race theory trainings uh, in, in every agency of the federal government. Um, it led in part to uh, the president issuing an executive order uh, abolishing these trainings. Uh, but as I've uncovered uh, in the last several days, uh, they're still going on in federal agencies uh, despite an explicit presidential order against them. So you you live in Seattle, is that correct? You know, I, I work in Seattle. I lived in Seattle for a number of years, but I, I live in a in a small uh, rural town in Washington State. Okay, but and and so you got somehow contacted on on this stuff going on inside the city of Seattle, and you, you say critical race theory. Uh, the, some of our listeners may, I mean, they, they, they've heard the term by now because it, it's circulating everywhere. But what are some of the specifics of critical race theory that are presented in these seminars to the attendees? What are some of the ideas? What are the things that they want uh, specifically? If you have 
specific things that they want people to do, the white people in the audience to do? Yeah, yeah I'll give you kind of a lineage of of critical race theory uh, that emerged in academia and then as it's being implemented in HR departments. But it, it really emerged uh, from critical theory in general, then critical legal studies, predominantly at Harvard, uh, now into kind of critical race theory more explicitly. And it's this idea that uh, the United States is a country that was founded on racism and that all of our institutions, such as the Constitution, our legal system, our, our social system, uh, et cetera, are, are merely kind of smoke screens for uh, and justifications for uh, racial oppression. Uh, they take the old Marxist idea of uh, oppressor and oppressed. Uh, they've kind of abandoned the, the class aspect of that. It's no longer the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Uh, and they've kind of supplanted, um, uh, kind of like grafted onto that, these kind of identity politics ideas. So saying uh, through your intersectional identity of your race, uh, gender and sexual orientation, you are either some combination of oppressor or oppressed. And that's kind of very high level, very abstract. But what's happened is that once it's translated into kind of HR programming, um, it really becomes this kind of bizarre uh, training regimen where they're they're saying, you know, A, America is a, is a fundamentally white supremacist country. And then if you are white, uh, you can be reduced to this magical essence called whiteness. Uh, and this is a combination of kind of oppressive psychological traits, internalized um, psychological disorders, uh, racism, unconscious bias, um, hatred, et cetera, um, that then the diversity trainers are supposed to almost exercise out of you in a kind of mystical HR training uh, where they're going to try to undo your whiteness. Um, and, and these are almost laughably pseudoscientific, divisive, racist. And yet this has become the default ideology of our public institutions. These kind of trainings and ideas are in uh, every federal agency. They're in most school districts in, in the United States. Um, and, and they've taken hold of the country uh, under the surface through our institutions in, in a way that I find both astonishing and deeply troubling. How did these programs start in the federal government? Were they, were they what, do, you, do you have a, a rough chronology of when they began? You know, they've been doing diversity trainings uh, for a long time. I, I've talked with folks that remember doing them in the 90s, but they were more kind of more innocuous. You know, they're saying, hey, we have different people in our department. This is how we all get along. This is how we all treat each other fairly. Uh, this is how we can all kind of uh, embody the, the, the virtue of, of kind of equal treatment under the law. It's changed since then. And I think uh, it, it really kind of took off in 2011. The Obama administration issued an executive order uh, requiring all the federal agencies to come up with these diversity and inclusion programs and plans. Um, so I, I think that was a pivotal moment. And then uh, on the other side of things, uh, uh, there's been this kind of consultant class that has emerged, diversity trainers, diversity and inclusion consultants. You know, I, I, the last number was from, I think, uh, you know, more than 10 or nearly 10 years ago that it was an $8 billion industry. Uh, I think since that time, it's probably at least doubled or tripled. Um, so you have a multi-billion dollar industry of these private firms ranging from a one-man shop in, 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 in Seattle or Omaha or, or New York, uh, all the way up to um, the largest consulting firms like uh, McKinsey and Deloitte uh, that are creating these programs and pushing them 
uh, at, essentially for profit at the federal level. And one thing I did in my investigations is I looked at some of the contracts. Uh, one gentleman in, in, in particular is kind of a, a fixture in the diversity, uh, diversity business. A man named Howard Ross um, has built the federal government uh, more than $5 million for diversity trainings, including one called Power and Privilege Sexual Orientation Workshops uh, that he billed $500,000 for to NASA. So presumably they're, they're teaching astronauts how to, uh, you know, explore their power and privilege sexual identities. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it becomes almost like absurd. And, and, and people, frankly, are doing it with impunity because it comports with the kind of default ideology of the administrative state uh, and then uh, is highly lucrative for these consultants on the outside. Now, given some of the, as you say, bizarre elements in these trainings and the materials that you published, you know, maybe I should say before finishing that question, Christopher, how do people see some of these materials? Have you collected them onto your onto your platform in some way? Yeah, you know, I, I'm posting them usually on Twitter. That seems to be the place to kind of blow them up. But I always post the um, source documents to my website, ChristopherRufo.com. And I do that for two reasons. One, it's great uh, to be able to have people come visit the website and see my other work. Uh, but I always post the full documents to show people uh, I'm not, I, you know, I may be highlighting certain portions in my essays and, and Twitter threads, of course, as any journalist would do, but I'm not misrepresenting their fundamental claims. You can actually go through the full documents and full sources. And they're doing things, Mark, like they're, they're arguing against things like objectivity. They're saying objectivity is actually a white supremacist value. And it's like, well, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, NASA would maintain some objectivity and mathematical rigor. Uh, they're arguing against individualization, again, saying it's a white supremacist value. They're arguing against meritocracy. They're arguing against rationality. And, and, and fundamentally what they're arguing against, they're, they're taking our systems and institutions, uh, and they're basically saying these are uh, corrupt to their core uh, with racism. They need to be deconstructed uh, and dismantled. And the critical race theorists in the legal profession are quite explicit. They don't believe in the Constitution. Uh, they're actually anti-constitutional. Uh, they don't believe that uh, kind of uh, you know benefits and privileges or punishments uh, should be distributed on the on the basis of individual in, individual merit or, or 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 lack of merit. They don't believe in the equal protection of individuals under the law. They believe in group power as the kind of supreme value, and that should be apportioned on the basis of. Of identity. All right. So when, when people go look at these documents uh, and they read your tweets uh, in which you describe some of the things going on, how is it that if this has been going on for, for you know, eight, eight or nine years, how is it that this has been able to cruise under the radar really until, until your work brought it out into the open? You went on Tucker Carlson uh, a few times. How... How did it go so, so, so subtly, even three, four years into the Trump administration? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's there's probably a number of answers. You know, first, I think that nobody is looking. You know, the the New York Times, the Washington Post, most of the daily newspapers, <clears throat> the reporters at those places are are ideologically aligned. And honestly, a lot of them will see something like this training, you know, and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That sounds good. Um, good work, guys. 
so, so I, I think the reporters, both on an individual basis, uh, and and then the kind of entities, the journalistic institutions, on a, on a kind of corporate basis, are not opposed to these, and therefore aren't looking. On on the other side, I think that conservatives, uh, you know, I think in a way we've kind of lost steam in these kind of cultural fights, and we've almost accepted defeat in a lot of ways. And I think that people uh, are, are feeling, and, 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 and with a lot of justification, frankly, are seeing these things spreading through the institutions and having a sense of despondency. We can't do anything about it. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, with me, it's like, I, I, I definitely don't take that attitude. I think we can do a lot about it and, uh, and we can set ambitious goals and we can fight and we can win. Um, and I think that I'm hoping that in the wake of these uh, investigations, people are are reawakened um, that this is a extremely kind of pernicious and dangerous ideology uh, that has to be fought at all levels. And I think you know I've demonstrated in my own small way that we can actually uh, win on this. It's both politically popular with the public and politically possible uh, as far as the institutions go. And um, and uh, I, I'm hopeful and. Uh, you know, I, I think that I'd love to see more people uh, engage on these issues. Yeah, I, I would imagine that in, if ever discussions of these sessions came up in 2015, 2016, what people got was that benign version of diversity and inclusion, like what you described were, uh, was happening in the 90s. And that when you get to the real hardcore white supremacy, you must confess your white privilege. They just didn't really talk about that outside the room so much. And, and again, you know, no one wanted, wanted to touch this because I think even, yeah, even conservative journalists, they're, they, they're afraid of the, of the race issue. And the thing is that when you brought these materials out and you actually read them, I think, as you say, these are deeply unpopular, not just with conservatives, they're very unpopular libertarians and liberals. I mean, just sort of moderate liberals would say, you know, this kind of pressure, putting people in this room and, and you know, making them ashamed of who they are, it's not even political. This doesn't feel right. This, this, is, uh, this is coercive. Um, this, is, this is unpleasant uh, to, to be around this. It's got to be... Uh, a political winner to take this on for for conserv for Republicans, I would think. Yeah, I think it. I think it absolutely is. And uh, you know, I think that um, the more that you can argue on the specifics, the better. Because I noticed in the coverage uh, following the president's order, the the New York Times and the Post and NPR just said very vaguely, um, uh, "Well, the president doesn't want diversity training, diversity or sensitivity training," and it's like. Oh my gosh, you guys are calling this sensitivity training? And I know for a fact, because I sent the journalists my uh, documents and my reporting, I know for a fact that they saw the same information that I did, and they just ignored it because these things are indefensible. And I think the more that we can be on offense, the more that we can force uh, the other, our, 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 our esteemed members of the opposition to defend the indefensible, uh, we'll start seeing results. And I think another thing is really happening that I find quite exciting is that th there seems to be a shift in the kind of intellectual, in the intellectual tribes, let's say, uh, where 
that might be analogous to the kind of neoconservatives uh, who were kind of liberals in the 70s and then became the neoconservatives. But I'm seeing a lot of liberals who are either maybe victimized by cancel culture, horrified by the kind of uh, kind of kind of race essential essentialist rhetoric of the left, uh, kind of, uh, you know, scared of this kind of wokeness um, revolution. And they're looking for allies. They're they're criticizing their own people, basically. Uh, and they're really kind of out on their own. And, and I hope that as conservatives, we welcome them into a kind of big tent where we say, hey, we will provide you uh, protection, support, backup, ammunition, uh, and access to political power where we can actually get something done. Because uh, you have a lot of great publications like um, Quillette and others that have kind of emerged as a response to this wokeness yeah. that are the no, that are liberal, liberal. They're, liberal. they're liberals. They're they're disinfected or disenchanted liberals. But it, they've developed in a tremendous audience, right? They have a huge audience, uh, but they haven't been able really thus far to deliver results. And I think that my proposition is that uh, the kind of disenchanted left and then the kind of intellectually rigorous conservatives can unite, uh, and together we can have both the kind of moral high ground, the intellectual high ground, and then also kind of bring these ideas to a place where they can achieve actual political results and political power. And uh, that's a project that I think is exciting and worth doing. Did you find any evidence that in some of these sessions, there were people in the audience who said, no, wait a minute, this isn't right. Were there, were there any evidence of objections or are or, or, or we, it's just too, that's too dangerous. Yeah, I, I would say there are. I have talked to a number of folks that objected um, and, uh, and, and, and paid the price uh, because, and, and then, you know, probably 99% or more of the people don't object because you have to think about the incentives here. If all of your kind of top leadership in a public institution is pushing this on you, you know, do you really want to be the person who says no? And I, I think th the real reason is that embedded in the critical race theory argument is a kind of mousetrap where if you disagree with it, if you dissent from it, they already have, they, they, what they'll say is, well, you know, that's just your false consciousness. Uh, really what's showing by your disagreement is your own white privilege, is your own internalized white superiority, is your own white fragility. So they operate in the same ways that a cult operates, uh, where they hit you with this kind of philosophy that is totalizing, that can solve everything, that will you know, revolutionize your life, uh, but also have extreme social pressure and punishment uh, always looming and lurking under the surface. And you know, a lot of people that are working in government, they're not getting paid uh, a lot. They've invested in a career where you know, it's a stable job, but you know, they're dependent on, you know, reaching retirement age and and they may have families. Uh, and a lot of people I talked to said, hey, look, I got into government 20 years ago. Um, it I got into it for public service and now I'm just writing it out so I can retire. Uh, but what's happening is truly horrific. And I don't feel like I have a voice. I don't feel like I can stand up to these folks. And, you know, I'm in a position uh, where I can. So um, I'm trying to bring some fire and bring some heat and bring some uh, some some kind of swashbuckling to those folks uh, where say, hey, you may not be able to fight, uh, but I will fight on your behalf and people will listen. You say that, well, you, you've gotten a lot of contact uh, from within the government since the opening salvos of your, 
of your reporting, are there a lot of very angry people out there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, right? It's like, you know, it's like I'm lighting up um, Sandia National Laboratories, a multi-billion dollar budget, um, and now they're going to be getting hauled into congressional testimony. They've been castigated by the energy secretary. Uh, I'm going after the Treasury Department, which, you know, literally controls all of the money. Uh, I'm going after all of the most powerful institutions in our country. And I know for a fact and already starting to feel some of it at the edges, uh, there's going to be blowback. There's going to be a kind of counterattack. You know, I'm disrupting the business model of some very powerful and very rich people. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, we have to say, I'm willing to take the risk. And uh, I, I think that the stakes of this are very high. If, if critical race theory and the kind of neo-Marxist ideology uh, takes over our institutions um, and it's poised to do so, that's the end of the republic. I mean, I, I, I say that not in a sense of hyperbole. I mean, you know, I just reported yesterday that the CDC was deliberately refusing to follow a direct presidential order and they were moving forward with a 13-week critical race theory program. You know, if, if you have the federal bureaucracy refusing to obey a direct order from the president, that's no longer a republic. That is a kind of administrate, rule by administrative state uh, that is, has an ideology of, 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 of kind of neo-Marxism, uh, identity politics, scientism, et cetera, this kind of new technocratic consensus. And, and that's really what I'm fighting against. And uh, I have to say, you, you may not have seen this yet, but it looks like today, uh, I'm going to read the first sentence of a story. The CDC was forced to cancel its critical race theory training program after documents leaked to reporter Christopher Rufo revealed the agency was moving forward with the program in violation. So it, it looks like uh, the CDC has backed off. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of that, but you, did you see this? I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. And I saw the tweet from Russ Vaught, the OMB director. But, you know, there's really two problems um, with that. I mean, obviously, it's a victory, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> I, I'm always happy when, you know, I, I score a victory like that. And, and I think it's a victory for justice. But, but there's two problems. One is that um, who's being held accountable? Who's pushing these programs? Who's violating the order? If you worked for Xerox or Microsoft or, or any other company, and you directly violated a, a, a order from the CEO, you'd be gone within hours. And I know that with the bureaucracy and the civil service, it's a little more complicated, but I mean, some, someone should be held to account. So I, I don't think it's enough. And then B, how many of these trainings are happening in other departments? Uh, my sense, and I'm working on some unconfirmed reporting right now, uh, that there are likely hundreds of these things that are moving forward uh, because frankly, the bureaucracy feels like it can operate uh, outside of its authority. Uh, they don't feel like they have to follow presidential orders. And, and I think this is really the heart of the issue. And, you know, it's like a bit of it is like whack-a-mole where you, I get reporting, I confirm it, find people, blah, 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 work through the process. Uh, but I want to actually change the playing field. Uh, and that's really the broader goal that I have in mind. Um, and, uh, and I think it's possible. And I think that uh, if we keep the pressure on and we get some good uh, alliances that we can get it done. Now, uh, if the people supporting this, I mean, the people who arranged these, uh, those who continue to, to believe 
in, in the probity of these sessions, there is no, there's no indication that anything is going to, that, that there won't be any review of those people. You haven't seen any, anything, any, any factor of accountability on this. Uh, not yet, but I, I am informed that uh, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, uh, will be going for a testimony on the Hill tomorrow, and I fully expect him to get grilled on this. And, uh, you know, he, he hasn't even kind of deigned to release a statement on this. Um, you know, his agency, of, of which he is the leader, uh, is, it was in flagrant violation of a presidential order, and uh, it doesn't seem that he thinks it's important enough to even respond. And, uh, and that, to me, is a, is a slap in the face to every American that is paying for uh, all of these agencies. And I find it extraordinary that we're in the midst of a once-in-a-century pandemic, and the CDC is prioritizing a 13-week seminar on how to interrupt white supremacy. Um, I, I, I don't accept that, and I especially don't accept it uh, under an, a president and an administration that has campaigned explicitly against these kind of ideologies. I think it's a, it's a major problem, and I, I'm going to keep pushing until we get some more accountability. From what I've seen in, in academia, where you've had the sort of critical race theory in a in, in a more diffuse version uh, spread in a more pervasive but less organized fashion is that all the talk of privilege and racism and diversity, it doesn't make anybody happy. Nobody walks out of these sessions feeling better than they did when they walked into these sessions. Uh, is there any evidence that you know of that these kinds of programs have been evaluated? Are they doing what they are supposed to do? When I mean, we've got several years of presentations, and do, do we have surveys? Do we have reviews of, of the performance of these sessions? You know, we, we do. And, and uh, you know, actually just this month, uh, a kind of great uh, survey of this, these kind of programs came out. And uh, it's a professor at Harvard, and he studied um, 800 diversity programs at different companies uh, over the course of 30 years. So this is a large time horizon. It is a large sample size. And his conclusion after, kind of sadly, after three dec decades of work, are that diversity programs do nothing uh, to actually improve anything. And in some cases, they actually are destructive. And, and this, I think, is just like, the, the most kind of amazing part about it. And I, I think a lot of times um, what I've seen is that uh, in, in different federal policies is that uh, there is a ideological and political objective that drives the policy, like these, uh, you know, white privilege seminars, et cetera. Then they try to basically rationalize them through cherry-picked social science. Uh, but but even for even for that kind of kind of lazy and low effort way of constructing their argument, uh, it's not even supported by the social science. And I, I think that talking with folks, um, just using your common sense, right, using your intuitions, using your experience, I've always found that people of different backgrounds, and I've worked with people everywhere. I've worked in films, uh, traveled to seventy countries around the world. I've directed documentaries uh, everywhere with different racial groups, ethnic groups, religions develop close relationships. And the thing that brings you together is not this kind of endless navel gazing and exploration of your own unconscious biases, et cetera. 
it's actually having a common purpose and objective doing the work. And I think that you almost, yeah, of course, race and identity is always there. That's true. But I think that you see extraordinary teams emerge, like in the military, for example, uh, that are very diverse because your life literally depends on the person standing next to you. And you're not, you know, in a foxhole talking about your internalized racial identity. You're in a foxhole working together to fight the enemy. Uh, and I think that that kind of, you know, that kind of idea where we're coming together, focusing less on what divides us, more on what brings us together, uh, is the way forward. And, uh, you know, some diversity training could be good. I'm not opposed to it all. I'm just opposed to this kind of toxic variation of it that we're finding so often. If if Joe Biden wins, all of it's going to be kickstarted double time, correct? Yeah, I I think double time is a very uh, maybe a, a bit too conservative of an estimate. I mean, uh, here's the thing: like I, I I think of Joe Biden, and I try not to get too too deep into the partisan politics, but uh, but I I try to always see kind of what is the operating ideology beneath the kind of circus. And um, Joe Biden is like a carapace. Uh, he is like a kind of armored carapace uh, that the ideologues are going to use to kind of batter they, their way into the federal institutions and into our society. Um, I, I don't think Joe Biden uh, would 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 uh, particularly, uh, he's kind of an old school Democrat, kind of backslapping, you know, union guy. I don't think that he would find these things particularly helpful. Uh, but I think that he's happy to basically uh, kind of delegate and concede power uh, to the real energy on the left. And the energy on the left is um, kind of this academic theory of critical race theory, the kind of permanent bureaucratic implementation of it, and then a direct line to the riots on the streets. If you actually listen to the speeches of the rioters and protesters, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a sloganeered version of critical race theory. So this is the kind of key ideology of the new left. And Joe Biden is not going to stand up to it. He's not going to get in their way. In fact, I don't think even most Republican presidents would stand up to it. I think Trump is kind of this unique character uh, where he's happy to kind of throw down the gauntlet on this stuff. But, uh, you know, I don't think a Jeb Bush uh, would have stood up to it. Um, and I certainly don't think a Joe Biden would either. Yeah, my, my sense is that the certainly the other Republican candidates, this just wasn't one of the fights that they would want to to pick. They, they'd want to stay away as much as possible from, from the race issues. They're, they're more about the tax issues, regulation issues, uh, but, you know, foreign policy. But these kinds of identity things, uh, Trump, Trump takes them on. I, I don't know anyone. Maybe Josh Hawley is is going to be. Uh, he he seems to be getting on this pretty pretty strongly. But I would say that again, uh, very few people are are happy about about the identity politics. Uh, not sure why other Republicans haven't become uh, more aggressive. On, on this, but I guess I guess we'll see. What do you think if, if Trump wins? Do you think we'll see? Last word: Will the Trump administration stay on these these kinds of identity politics issues? Yeah, I, I, I think that they will. I'm 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 very much convinced that they will. And I, I think that you know the work. You know, obviously, I, I'm not a, a kind of political partisan person, and, and I'll leave it up to those folks to do it. But 
I would say if there is four more years of a Trump administration, I think that uh, what we can do is working with some of the legislators like Senator Hawley, who are uh, favorable to this stuff, uh, cobbling together a coalition of conservatives, uh, libertarians, uh, liberals, uh, kind of disenchanted progressives uh, to make a strong counter argument to the kind of critical race theory narrative. Um, and, and then I think, you know, we get to work actually implementing it. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a lot of work that we could do as far as legislation, as far as executive action, um, and then arming people in their local communities uh, with a kind of successful formula on how to fight back. Uh, because I, I get hundreds of emails from people saying, you know, my school district in upstate New York or my school district in, you know, small town Arizona, they're doing the same stuff and I don't know what to do. What can I do to fight back? And I feel, you know, sadly, I can't help or respond to all of them. Uh, but I'm hoping that we can create a kind of uh, formula for fighting back and then decentralizing this effort so that, you know, parents and families and communities can stand up uh, for themselves uh, and kind of um, really understand what's at play um, with this ideology, uh, really understand that is opposed to our constitutional order and opposed to our, our, our kind of fundamental uh, institutions. Uh, and then, you know, fight back. Because one thing that critical race theory is predicated on is this idea that uh, all kind of social relations and institutions are reducible to power. Uh, and and they won't be kind of appeased by an appeal to civic discourse. They won't be appeased by doing it halfway. Um, they will only stop uh, when they're confronted uh, with a superior force. And, uh, and, and, you know, not physical force, obviously. Uh, uh, but uh, although in the riots, you know, uh, certainly law enforcement. But I, I think we have to have a kind of moral and intellectual force uh, that stands up to these people. Uh, and that's the way that we win. Christopher Rufo, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu.